Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast. And in this week's episode, I speak with Kevin Kelly, co-founder of Wired Magazine and a former editor of The Whole Earth Review. Kevin is regarded as a futurist and has written about the economy and also technological advances of the future. More recently, he's well known for his current books, New Rules for the New Economy, 10 Radical Strategies for a Connected World, and The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces that Will Shape Our Future. And after reading The Inevitable, I wanted to reach out to Kevin and chance my arm and see would he be interested in coming on to the Economic Rockstar podcast. And I did listen to him on other podcasts such as the Tim Ferriss Show, and I just found it so intriguing and so relevant to economics that if any of you don't listen to those other podcasts, then you're missing out. So I made that first contact about 12 months ago, and it finally came about. So I was really stoked when he decided to come on, and there was so much to explore that I honestly didn't know in which direction it would take. So I just more or less let the conversation naturally flow. And personally, I thought it was very enlightening and what he actually brought to the conversation and what he brought out of me in terms of my questioning. And you may wonder, what would a futurist or somebody who is the co-founder of Wired Magazine or the Whole Earth Review would have to do with economics? And you hopefully you agree, I think he has a lot to do with it because the underlying nature of human connectivity was face-to-face and now technological. So there are numerous barriers that are being challenged and broken down in terms of our ability to communicate and interact. And it's this that we talk about in the interview. And Kevin being a, I suppose, a somewhat a minimalist, somebody who has embraced that type of nomadic minimalistic life from his early years where he traveled around in Asia to discovering a love for photography and that connectivity with native people of the countries that he had visited and to showcase it to the world. And this is where his editing skills have had evolved during his time as an editor at Whole Earth Review came about, which led eventually to him co-founding Wired Magazine. So the challenges that we're facing today is the connectivity and the innovations that are evolving given virtual reality is something that is on the brink of becoming more mainstream. And Kevin identifies a number of ways in which virtual reality can become so beneficial and is becoming very useful for companies such as General Electric, in which they can actually solve problems, especially given integrated systems, and something that could be resolved remotely if there were problems such as a submarine immersed deep undersea and there's some problems that has to be solved and fixed by engineers and those engineers can do that online and the engineers can solve those problems on land using that type of technology. But it's also some interesting parts of the discussion about education and how far removed the education system is regarding innovative practices and why there might be a slow response to this type of innovative adoption. But Kevin's all in favour of exploring the unknown and questioning the unknowns rather than questioning what has already come before us. So by adopting a philosophical approach to problems around us could enhance our ability to make more groundbreaking discoveries and progress humankind. And he calls this the creative dilemma, something in which we may be only one step away from a technology that's going to give us some exponential growth. And what I love about his writings in his recent book, The Inevitable, is his discussion on cognifying and also sharing. And this is something we bring up in a conversation in which we are making things around us smarter. And this is a progression in technology at the moment in which we have the Internet of Things. So all these mundane tasks that we do every day can be left to some type of artificial intelligence, whether it's software or hardware, such as your driverless cars. And another element of the current trends in human interaction is our ability to become more of a sharing economy, where there's collaboration at a mass scale. 
And if you want to check out a video of our conversation, why not go to YouTube and search for economic rock star Kevin Kelly and you'll actually see that conversation if you prefer to watch it. So again, thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate you pressing play on that. If you're on Apple Podcast, I'd be so honored if you could subscribe. You'll never miss an episode. You'll always get one notification every week. So you'll never miss one. Please like and share. Give it an honest rating and review. Again, likewise, if you are on any other platform and there's a link there where you can share it, such as the one on Spotify, put it out there, share it with a friend who you might think would enjoy this conversation. You'll be hopefully doing them a favor by letting them know of this podcast. And also you'll be doing me a favor by introducing a new person as a listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast. And if you want to further help the podcast, why not check out patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar in which you can support the show for as little as $1 a month. And I'd be so grateful for you if you could do that. But again, if not, I'm happy for you to be continue pressing play. Why not listen to the episode if you're going to be on a on a flight or somewhere where there's not going to be any connectivity? Why not go to my website, economicrockstar.com, and you can actually download the podcast onto your phone and you can listen to that offline. You can check out all the links, books and resources mentioned in this episode over at economicrockstar.com forward slash Kevin Kelly. So again, thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Kevin Kelly co-founder of Wired Magazine. And so in the world of innovation, you know, being ahead too early is almost as bad as being too late. Um, there is this idea of the adjacent possible. What you, The best innovations are always one that are just one or two steps away. They aren't five steps away. You, you have to kind of take the culture and you um, want to have the next adjacent step that that is what we're looking for. That's where the the work gets done. Hello, Kevin. Hello. Hi, how, how are, are you, you doing? Um, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Uh, I was looking forward to this since I first reached out. Oh, it could have been over 12 months ago. You know, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. I, I've listened to podcast episodes with Tim Ferriss and so on, and I just couldn't wait to hear what you have to say. And I've read your book, The Inevitable, and there's so much we could talk about. Um, I suppose we could start off with your background and how you found yourself into the technological aspect of your life. And that came later on, I think. It did. Um I think I was closer to being a hippie in my 20s. Um, I owned very little. I had um, a camera, a sleeping bag, eventually had a bicycle, and that was it. I didn't have a job. And um, I kind of inherited that slight allergy to technology and corporations and companies and, you know, the uh, the mainstream working for the man kind of stuff. And I, I kind of entered into a different relationship with technology after I stopped traveling and I started to write about the one thing I knew, which was how to travel cheaply. Um, and I had exposure to an online uh, computers through where I worked. And I formulated this idea that this emerging online world was a new country and I decided to write about it as if it was a travel piece um, and so I started to explore the online world as if it was uh, a new continent and uh, like Asia and um, I saw there a different face of technology I saw on the online world um, something that was not kind of the, you know, um, it was it was more human scale. It was more organic. It was a, it was, it was a little bit more um, my speed. It was uh, felt like a community rather than like a technology. And so um, that began a reevaluation for me of um, technology as I saw a different face of it. And then once I started to look at it in a different way. And once technology became more complex and digital, I think it did become more biological. And so um, my introduction to it was um, through the online world 
and that kind of changed my my whole relationship with technology. I had a recent guest um, there. I spoke to her two days ago, and her research is on Ayn Rand. And we were talking about objectivism and how she despised the hippie community in a way because uh, they liked the, the communal aspect of a relationship and they despised, in a way, the capitalism model. But from that uh, era of the 1960s, we had well-known entrepreneurs like Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs who had that ideal of a hippie movement and i'm sure yourself i can't speak for yourself but from your what you were saying there you mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. you wanted to find and maybe this is what brought about this biological integration of technology with human because as it evolved it became more integrated in our daily lives and it's ironic that these individuals have created a, a different capitalist society whereby we thrive and live by these technological advances. Yeah, I, I think the uh, hippie origins of Silicon Valley are underappreciated. There, there was a book by John Markoff, the New York Times technical writer, uh, obscurely titled um, "What the Dormouse Said." That's the name of the book. What the Dormouse Said, which is a line from the rock and roll legend Jefferson Airplane. It's about the hippie origins of Silicon Valley. How. Uh, all the long hair um, originators of, um, you know, from Doug Engelbart and others who were influenced by LSD, um, who were trying to, who saw the technology of human augmentation as a kind of a mandate, you know, the human potential. Um, so, so um, a lot of the entrepreneurial spirit that kind of is currently running through Silicon Valley, not even to mention the whole open source movement, which is a kind of a communal communistic socialistic enterprise um is is very much um has its roots in that kind of um of the hippiness which was um yes it was socialistic but it was also entrepreneurish it was saying you know drop out and do your own thing uh you know don't work for the man do your own thing that is you know, that's, that's, that's a startup, you know, start your own stuff, do it yourself, start your own stuff with small, the power of the small. So there were a lot of elements in the hippie besides the kind of communitarian socialists. There was also this whole, um, uh, disruptive, um, entrepreneurial spirit that has blossomed here in San Francisco, which was, you know, the home of the beatniks and the hippies. Um, so I think when we paint this landscape, we tend to kind of make it binary. You know, there's two flavors, there's kind of, you know, there's right and left, there's capitalist and socialist, but this this is like totally wrong. I mean, there's like infinite variations, multiple dimensions, many different gradations, and there are entirely new political, you know, uh, modes that we haven't even explored yet. And that's the, that's the thing I get quite confusing with. I I know in Ireland here we have a limited, I suppose a different you know limited parties political spectrums, yeah. and it's so such a cacophony of opinions and philosophies in the United States. And I'm quite confused with what's going on. But is there something <laughs> honestly libertarian, neo-libertarian? conservative and christian conservatives and it's there's so many yeah, yeah, levels yeah, yeah, and yeah. layers of it that well, there was there they, yeah it's, it's really confusing there was a guy just arrested yesterday uh who was a political extremist who wanted to uh he was arrested with 200 pound bomb he wanted to blow up uh the washington mall on election day and his political agenda was um uh sortation Sortiation. And it's like I had to go to Wikipedia and look it up. And what it was was this belief that elected the officials should be elected by random at random. I, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 the and the Amish actually do this. Amish actually do have a appoint their leaders um at random. And the idea was is that if you're random you can't be corrupted. 
Um, right. And so, uh, <laughs> he was willing to blow himself up and everybody else for this political, uh, uh, you know, this political ideology that, um, I'd not even heard of as a term before. So that's just another data point in, in the kind of, I mean, this guy, he, he believed in it so much that he was ready to, to kill himself for it. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, we're, 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 we're full of, um, the full spectrum of, um, ideological, uh, beliefs. But that is, that is to indicate that, 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 um, we're, we're, we're just, exp- we're just at the beginning of exploring some of these possibilities. I've just been reading a book. I'm going to do an interview with a guy at our wire, wire's having our 25th anniversary this weekend. And, um, I'm interviewing a guy named Glenn Weil, who is an economist at Microsoft, who has some crazy ideas about quadratic voting and um, uh, universal auctions and and no property ownership. It's all use. It, they're, they're they're crazy, but they're crazy in a good way, in a sense that it kind of shows you that we're kind of limited in our ideas of what's possible economically and politically. And some of the ideas in the past, the kind of ideas that we have now that work, were considered completely crazy a couple hundred years ago. And so um, I think we shouldn't be, we shouldn't close our minds to to way things work. And it certainly aren't binary, whether you're either left or you're right. Well, if you close your minds to this, I don't think there's, or close your minds to any opportunities and just sure. focus in on what's going on. There's no opportunity to grow and explore and question things because exactly. there's a lot of questions that we, that are unanswered and we need to explore these. And to be yeah. honest, congratulations on The Wired as well, on Wired Magazine on its 25th anniversary that you co-founded. And I actually did come across an article, um, by, is it Royal? You said you're going to, uh, that'll be interviewing you at the, yeah, weekend. wow. Glenn yeah, Weil, yeah. Glenn Weil, yeah. I came across an article recently, um, and you need you need these people not only in technology or science and the the medical uh, industry, but also from the educational point of view. That sure. is quite is is could be considered quite backward, given oh, all the yeah. progress that has happened. And education, the educational sector, is typically seen as at the forefront of new ideas, but yet it is at the back of, uh, is the last to change. It and is, it is, Why is that? Is it because of the users? Are we, like I'm a lecturer at a college, but am I waiting for the users to adopt and demand new technologies in a more um, fluid sense and then I have to adapt and change for that? Uh, even though I feel I'm adapting to and taking use, making use of new technological progress like the platforms we're talking about today. But we are slow to move. Yeah, I mean, education, of course, is, is a broad subject. You have, you have, you know, pre-K, you've got the whole elementary school, which I think is an entirely different thing than high school, which is an entirely different thing from college. And we kind of lump it all together in education. And I think what what, what we're doing or should be doing in those those um, stages are all very, very different. I mean, to me, early childhood is more about rearing and developing character than it is about conveying information or skills even. Um, you know, middle school is something else, a lot more about skills. And so, um, uh, uh, you know, it's, we really shouldn't be talking about them all together, but but we tend to. I, I think um, I, I think part of it is um, it's sort of, you know, there's been enough research in p- p- pedagogical studies that we actually know what works. I mean, we we actually know a lot about how to convey and teach and stuff. But it's a um, uh, people are just very slow to accept some of these radical notions. And I think maybe we have to uh, maybe they ha- we have to prove to people that that these different things work. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people's idea of success is also very limited and very narrow. You know, unless you made a million dollars by the time you're 30, you're not successful. It's like, that is just the wrong metric. Um, you know, and there's a whole fashion about 
education. So there's these brands, you know, the Harvard brand, which is completely disconnected from the actual education that you would get at Harvard. And um, all people care about is that there's a brand that they're wearing the jeans that have the, the little label on it. And so, um, so it's a very complicated process. I think we, we, we know we science knows what it is to be done, but I think there's just, you know, political willpower. It's, it's going to be slow to change. A lot of people have inherited ideas about, what success means. And I think that's the one place I would start to change is to expand what we mean by success. And, um, so then we can, we can say, well, is, you know, is, does this system generate success? Well, we have to have the expanded versions of success. And, um, you want people to say, well, I want that right now. They're saying, I want that brand. I want the, I want the blue label brand because they think that leads to a million dollars by the time you're 30. Mm. And that, as you said, that's the wrong metric to be achieving. Like we as humans in this age of technological change, we are losing that connection. Even it's uh, ironic. We are losing that connection, that interpersonal connection that we have at a human touch. And we're connecting more through technology. Um, and what could be very much advantageous to us as humans in the future is to explore the relationship we have with other humans from a kind of face-to-face personal aspect and enrich ourselves with cultures from around the world. And we could be losing sight of those cultures with the globalization and that technological integration. And you yourself, you're well-traveled, particularly in Asia. And I'm sure that opened your mind to find out what it's like to be living in an urban community in San Francisco compared to an urban and a rural community in uh, Taiwan or China or Singapore. And that is quite a unique um, gift to have if you were able to open your eyes and see what they can actually teach you. Because in a recent article, for example, um, you can uh, tell me more uh, tell us more about it mm-hmm. but you, you lived with a mongolian family or mm-hmm. you you and you you explored how you could live um, on a certain uh, wage on, on that in which uh, you know it, you had to adapt as a human yeah i i think um i'm all about trying to expand the possibility space the space of possible choices possible technologies possible livelihoods, possible ways of being. And I think in, in general, anybody, wherever you grow up, your your vision of what's possible is fairly limited. And uh, I'm a huge, huge believer in today, like YouTube, and as, as, as one of the many means that people can use to enlarge their ideas of what's possible, both from like what is humanly possible, what humans can do when they're unleashed, the kind of crazy accomplishments they can make to the the most obscure passion or as we're talking about the, the, the different lifestyles, the different ways you can live or make a living are all much greater than you think. And um, if you travel, you're kind of awakened to the idea that, oh my gosh, I, I didn't even know this was possible and here are people you know, living like this, it should then invoke the next step, which is like, well, what else don't I know? How many other possibilities haven't even been invented yet? If, if all these, if it's possible to, to live as a, you know, I don't know, as a calligrapher, um, drawing ancient characters on, um, as a full-time profession, what else is possible? And so, um, I, I, um, encourage people to travel when they're young, especially I think, I think we should mandate. It. I think it should be almost be subsidized. It's so valuable because that's one of the things that it does is it opens you up to the many other possibilities you didn't know. And secondly, it also um, helps you think differently to understand that there's uh, many different alternative solutions to the common problems that we have. And even if, you, sometimes you'll find a, a solution 
in somewhere else, but oftentimes just the fact that there are different solutions will provoke in you an idea, a new idea of a different solution. And um, I think that works on many levels of life that um, when you're young, there's nothing better for your education than to actually go to the most remote, different place and you possibly can get to and um, pay attention to what's happening. Besides the fact that you'll have empathetic relations and understand people are, are universally the same, that's that's like a you know that's a bonus almost. In addition to the other things, um, yeah, it's it's hard to go at war with people when you have spent time in their homes. Um, it's not impossible, but it's, <laughs> it makes it more harder. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, but more importantly, I think um, you understand the, the the value of otherness and the fact that um, in a world where all of us are connected all the time, day and night, it actually becomes really difficult to think differently. Yeah, and again, part of what travel can do is it can help you think different because that is the engine of innovation, wealth, everything else is good is being able to think different. And, 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 um, you know, when you go about trying to make something, which I hope you do, um, your challenge is going to be to think differently about it because if you're just thinking the same, it's it's not going to be that valuable. The, The value comes in doing it a little differently and being able to do it differently is becoming an increasing challenge when we are connected all the time to each other. So you have to kind of disconnect a little bit and then you have to be able to think differently. And I think living in a world where things are being done differently is one of the best ways to help you think differently. Especially um, with, say, emerging economies or those countries who have no opened up themselves to yeah. relate and integrate and trade with other countries and share their resources, both human potential as well as their natural and what they can do and bring to the other other parts of the world. Um, and like I, I know in your book, New Rules for the New Economy, 10 Radical Strategies for a Connected World, you know, you, you looked at how connectivity is more important than, say, um, computation. Even though you know you you have you have this part of your website called quantified self, and it is important to look at maybe data and statistics about your yourself or and other mm. inf- other information if you want to extrapolate into the future. But having that ability to connect and then to communicate is could could create boundless opportunities once shared. Um, like. The Japanese economy has grown based on Taylorism and other methods of being efficient on the in the workplace for productivity. And now we have the onset of how we can use technology and integrate it into all types of industries and sectors and how our economy actually can thrive on this technological advance, which China has now embraced and are, I'm sure, going to bring us some fantastic uh, innovations in terms of, say, medical science or cures for diseases and maybe even new transport methods or communication methods. And mm-hmm. this, with a large population of over 1 billion people, even if, if, if I don't know what the data is, 1% of Americans are very innovative and they bring us these changes in technology, but 1% of 1 billion is a lot compared to um, that 1% in, say, Ireland or the United States or any other world. So we are, I'm sure, on the cusp of an innovative wave of something that may be extremely beneficial that we may even not know what it is yet. Oh, yes. I absolutely agree. I think, you know, uh, for a long time, the U.S. was derided rightfully by England and in Europe for being copyright pirates um, the U.S. stole and ripped off and copied everything from Europe. Um, and, you know, authors like Dickens and stuff were perennially crying and whining and complaining about the, um, the copycats in America. Um, and that's the necessary stage, uh, to copy. And China and Japan was a copy culture for a very long time. 
Um, and then they graduated to become in uh, a country that was capable of innovation. And China is right on the cusp. They've, they've been an outright copy culture, and they've been like the student who, cop- who stands in the studio and copies the master pieces. And they paint them over and over again, and then they suddenly are good enough, and now they're going to do it. And so China is about, and it has already begun, to be very innovative, and I've seen the innovation um, starting to bubble up, and they're going to surprise us. They're going to shock the world in the next five years or seven years, and they're going to make some product that is truly innovative and the entire world wants. And um, uh, then people will kind of realize that um, the Chinese are perfectly capable of doing world-class innovation. Um, and so, uh, and then they'll be off, you know, they'll, they'll start to do that and, um, people will chuckle the fact that, um, no one believed that they could do it, but, um, uh, it just takes some time. And, um, like the Japanese, they've sort of come to the American experts and say, how do we be innovative? And the American experts give this real long line, long list of, of things to do. Like, you know, you need to have science fairs. You've got to have, uh, uh, you know, innovation incubators, all this. And they just, they go down the checklist and they do them all. Uh, embrace failure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, forgive, um, uh, mistakes. And so they're just going down and they're doing all of it and, um, it's working. And so, uh, I, I, yeah, I think we're headed into a century. Um, where China and Asia and India are going to truly become innovative in a different way than the West and America, which is fine. And um, uh, the world will benefit from that innovation. But even in Silicon Valley, as you mentioned earlier on, that subculture, that thrived on innovation and imitation and open source. Yeah. And, you know, even a large company who could be threatened by a startup's fantastic product, whether it's a soap, something that's liquid like that, or whether it's a piece of technology. I'm sure that either that company would try to take over and buy the startup or they will try to compete with them. And again, in your book on the, uh, the inevitable, one of those steps would be say remixing and, you know, they could, and this is what the other companies had done in the 70s and 80s. They broke down products like a washing machine and they tried to reassemble them to so, so that they can mm-hmm. understand how they're built. Uh, and, but we're moving into a technological age where this is all done online and digitally. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing now what we have experienced in any revolution like the industrial revolution, the technological revolution in terms of hardware and software and now digital with, say, the open source that's available through the Bitcoin white paper. And from that, then, we see the threat to the establishment, like what you had re- uh, related to back uh, in the hippie era, era. So there are these so-called, I'm sure, I don't know if it's the right term, digital hippies that are creating this new platform so that we could and I, I don't need to explain it, but that we could create new cryptos that we can uh, decentralize uh, and have these open source communities and um, these digital ledgers that we can secure information and transfer information with uh, through nodes within a network. This is something the establishment or banking systems or the central bank or government could be very worried about and are trying to resist it by um, making things a little difficult. But it will break. I'm sure it'll break, whereby they just can't stop something that's going to be in a, inevitable. Is this something that you foresee could be more mainstream? Yeah, I mean, um, the 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 thing about we're talking about blockchain now and yeah. crypto a little bit. The thing about blockchain that I, I, I'm reminded of of um, biotechnology from blockchain and. In this way, it, it, you know, week by week, every issue of science and nature and all the journals are just crammed with amazing discoveries in biotechnology every week. But it's always, it's a very long distance from those 
incredible discoveries and innovations to actually a pill that you can take as a therapy. And I feel that a little bit the same with blockchain is that there's a huge amount of innovation and stuff, but there's a, it's been, a, it has been a very long way to actually to a consumer difference where it changes your behavior. So, um, I am bullish on biotechnology. I think it's overall good, but, but I am, I, I think we should be very patient. It's going to take a long time. And I would say the same thing about blockchain. It, it has some of the attributes to me of an ecosystem of trying to build up that I think, um, while it may be a revolution in the long run, I think it's going to be a long run. Okay. Yeah. And, um, that, like if if you you don't want to hold your breath waiting for um you know a pill to make you live 120 it's just not it's just very unlikely to happen and i think the idea of making an alternative decentralized internet based around blockchain i think that may be i think you, i don't think you should hold your breath for that i think um there'll be many good things that will come out of that attempt um, but I'm not sure we're going to have a magic pill at the end, at least for, for a long time. What excites you today, Kevin? Would it be mm. um, artificial intelligence, virtual reality? That, that's, more, that's, that's going to be more um, real and within touching yeah. distance. Absolutely. AI uh, um, is the most potent force unleashed today that will affect every single aspect of our lives from fashion, sports, food, religion, military, doesn't everything will be touched. And I, I don't really even, I mean, it's a, it's a cliche right now, so I don't really need to spend any time on it. The thing that I'm also excited by that I think is far more under appreciated, invisible, harder to explain is um, something that, I'm now calling the mirror world. Okay. The VCs call it the AR cloud, the augmented reality cloud. It is a, um, I, it's what I believe the, the thing that will come after the web. And, um, it's a three dimensional spatial digital twin of the real world and all the objects that coincides it co-inhabits the same physical space as the real world and everything in it has this digital twin that's coinciding it and that digital twin that mirror digital mirror um, is a way to engage the real world so we can use that digital version for all the things we want to do with information. We want to be able to search it so we can search for places. We want to be able to um, alter it and annotate it so we can make footnotes that persist in a place. And so you visit some place, you leave a note, someone else comes by, they see the note or they see the alteration or they see the ad or they see the, um, uh, the, the, the version that you made in that same place. It's also a way to do a simulation so that that virtual twin is, a, is can be a can be a working simulation of the thing. So General Electric has these digital twins of all the factories or submarines, power plants that they make and it's that simulation that the digital twin is a simulation that's simulating in real time the thing itself and it can be used to troubleshoot it's also a way to organize big data so all the big data in the world all the things being all the data being thrown off by a building traffic inside um a city this is a place to this is this is the logical way to organize that data so instead of having file folders and you actually have a three-dimensional world that is the organizing metaphor for organizing all the big data. And the fourth, the fourth reason, the last one is that um, this is the, the world that robots and self-driving cars see. This is the world. So all, all the robots and AIs that we make, this is the version of the world that they're seeing and moving through. 
that makes sense then for that type of technology in terms of the hardware working yeah. within a digital augmented reality or the mirror world that you refer to. Right, exactly. And like, I, I just wonder, like, say, for example, you mentioned GE with this submarine. Does the parallel world of this AOR have to be within that submarine or could they create a space in a warehouse whereby they could change um, that submarine to a car or another type of machi- machine or does it right. have to be in the machine, the submarine itself? Right. Obviously, it can be both. Okay. It can be both. I mean, it's just a copy. It can be copied anywhere. But um, so it probably would be both. You would have access to it. And sort of, and it's almost like a philosophical question. Like, where is it really? Well, I mean, the, 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 the thing about this spatial world is that it's semantic, uh, semantically structured, which is kind of um, – um, it's a fancy word. What it means is that um, the, the 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 parts of this world. It's not like each piece has like a fixed um, GPS coordinate, okay. or that it has an or that it has an IP address. It doesn't. It's it's like the the virtual doorknob is connected to a virtual door, which is in a virtual door frame, and so. Its position is relational, and so the the system sort of have to understand that there's a building facade and that the facade is made up of windows, and each window has a sash, and and so it's a semantically structured world. It's not like there's an IP address like the Internet of Things, where there's an IP address for each window sash or door handle. It's that you know um, the question is like you know. Where does the what's the door? Where's the door end? Really depends on what why you want to know, and you'll get a different answer depending on what your question is. And so, because this is semantically structured, so it's a very sophisticated uh, environment. And so the submarine, of course, it's moving around, but this, but the uh, the, the, the say the the, the power plant um, is positioned in a. A building, which is the building itself, is on some land, and so where does the land end and the building begin? It kind of depends on your why you want to know. But the idea is is that that is one way to organize it. But of course, obviously, you can look at it any way you want to, separate from that. It's just it's just the data. But this is a a way that you organize that data, and you can organize the world, and you can uh, just as we naturally as humans find organizing things chronologically to be intuitive we also intuitively organize things three-dimensionally i'd say it's it'll bring about different layers within that type yeah. of structure so you could if you want to start, see the if if you want to refer to like say the human body you can analyze the skin and go a layer sure. below and then eventually into the right, skeleton right. and right. You, you can identify and fix problems. So like the reason why I asked you about could the GE see the submarine in a building, say the submarine um, gets lodged and all crew members are mm-hmm. gassed or something or they're knocked out and mm-hmm. there's no one can rectify the situation. Can engineers in this room be able to yeah. bring up and try and fix the problem? Sure. And, yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 then they do that already. They, okay, they do right. trouble. They do troubleshooting um, on these simulations. They're used exactly for that for for troubleshooting them. Like, what does this mean for the economy in the future? Like, I, I've spoke to a couple of e- economists on the podcast, and the way they present their theories, philosophies, it's uh, it, it seems dystopian and. That's I I really welcome that because I think you have to have that far-reaching and um, thought process. Whether mm-hmm. it materializes or not, we don't know. But at least they're putting them, their name to this type of thinking and finding out where the economy could go by integrating possible technological advances. Now, it all all it takes is one small movement to the left, such as the butterfly effect, for us to end up with in a totally different type of mm-hmm. economy or different type of future mm-hmm. based on who discovers the technology today. If mm-hmm. that person happened to get knocked down by a car and killed, for example, we've just missed out on a huge opportunity. Look at what could have happened if World War One or Two didn't happen or any other war. Mm-hmm. You know, the great minds... Einstein was um, saved by giving a last-minute visa to the United States. What mm-hmm. could have happened there? So 
there, there's all these possibilities. And like you in your in your book, the inevitable, you give out a list where it shows, for example, one of them about cognifying, and that is, you know, it, it it's happening. It's happening now. I question what's the point with education if we can have answers at our fingertips. So why try and learn something that's already been learned and we know about it? Why not ask questions and create philosophical schools or philosophical thinking mm-hmm. and look at all these possibilities and explore them more mm-hmm. like MIT's Media Lab or uh, different um, schools that are or startups that are questioning people who have skin in the game, who are looking to not work like what you did, not work for somebody, but look for something yourself. Mm-hmm. And if that takes a long time, it might bring about that fulfillment that you're enjoying, right. but hopefully the breakthrough you, you, you crave for. So um, you mentioned my book, The Inevitable, which absolutely has in the title the idea that there's some inevitability in technology. And um, my previous book, What Technology Wants, I, I, which is a theory of technology, I actually um, did some research because one of the claims I make in what technology wants is that um, technological development follows a natural developmental process that if you were to visit many planets in, in, in our own galaxy that had civilizational technology, that they would probably go through a very similar stages, you know, discovering electricity and then going you know, radio and um wires and the internet and stuff like that. So I would say that in a certain sense that once you've invented electricity, that the internet was inevitable. And once you have um, these other kinds of technologies, that AI is inevitable. And that actually doesn't, and that, that, that simultaneous, independent simultaneous discovery is actually the norm. That 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 um, if you bus knocks over uh, Steve Jobs, they'll still have you know smartphones. And that, um, in fact, they did some research about Einstein and that if Einstein had been killed or not been there. There was a couple other people right behind him, maybe, maybe, probably not in the same year, but probably within seven years, who would have had the theory of relativity. And so, um, yes, you know, it's like blockchain, Natoshi, probably someone would eventually have come to blockchain, even if maybe not the same time period. Maybe we would have been another decade, but, but, but someone will have gotten to blockchain. In fact, I recently asked George Church whether there's a possibility that actually somewhere in the genetic code and genes there actually might have been a blockchain hash function somewhere. It's not impossible that... Um, and and like biological other, markers, is it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that like most other things that we've invented, that, that, there, that there, there might have been a natural analog of blockchain somewhere in the genome. The genome was so complicated that we're just beginning to understand it. So I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a possibility. And the point, the point, although, is that um, I think that there is a lot of inevitability in the larger forms of this technology. The specifics are always inherently stochastic and unpredictable. We cannot predict them. The Telephone was inevitable. The iPhone was not. You know, four-legged quadrupeds were inevitable in evolution just because of gravity. The zebra as a species was not. You know, social media was inevitable given everything. Facebook, the particulars were not. So the particulars are inherently subject to the butterfly effect. But the larger forms, the genres, are inevitable. And so um, I think... You know, blockchain cryptocurrencies were inevitable. We go to other planets, they're going to probably have them. Um, but, you know, Bitcoin as it was constituted, the particulars, you know, Ethereum, those were not inevitable. Those, those, um, were specifics and those specifics make a difference to us. The, the, the actual character of whether something is the internet, whether internet was inevitable, but whether it was transnational, open sourced, proprietary commercial that those weren't it could have been any of those and they would have made a huge difference to us so i'm i'm saying our choices matter but are they only matter in the specifics the general contours i think are a little bit more 
predetermined. Just when you said about the, the genome and there was a blockchain, yeah. I, I, I just started thinking, like, all our actions, everything that we do on Earth, mm-hmm. is that built into our kind of, like, our, our matrix, the DNA that we have, and we're mm-hmm. only kind of, we're mm-hmm. creating a more tangible experience of what is expected mm-hmm. of us as a human species. Mm-hmm. You know, I suppose this is a philosophical yeah. question. It, it, it is, it is, it is. It's just like, you know, I, I believe that there are limits to what is possible given the physics of chemistry and and just physics. And so I, I think that we can certainly as a human, we can imagine things that may not be possible to make. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, you know, for maybe, you know, time travel is one of them. I don't know, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, it's, I think there are limits by, by the nature of the fact that you have atoms, which are limited and their, their forces are limited. There are certain things that are predisposed and some things are easier to make than other things because the, the physics are geared in that direction. And that means that, you know, some technologies are going to be easier to discover than others. And one of, you know, one of the, I think one of the points that Tyler has been making, Cohen's been making recently about that, that, that there, that there, we may have already come up with all the easy things to discover. We may be having gone through them and we may be pushing against ones that are going to be a lot harder to discover. Um, or even invent because we're up against the limits of of what chemistry and physics allow, and um, or or other economic um, inevitabilities. And so, I, I I I'm a little bit more of a technological determinist than most, um, but I want to emphasize that even though the these larger the larger valley in which the river runs is constrained that we still have a huge arena to meander in and we have a huge number of choices that really make a difference to us again the internet might have been inevitable but not the character of it and if it had been commercialized it would have been a very different thing and that is important so we still have plenty of choice to make but the choices i think are in the specifics and the character rather than the general form like I, I I agree with you about pref, um, preferring a deterministic technological progress because you can prepare for it, but uh, being aware of the stochastic nature or perhaps mm-hmm. the random or the unknown, it's very difficult to prepare for that. And I just think back when you just say it, the alchemists, how they spend so much time trying to use metals to create gold and silver. What, you know, how... If, 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 are there technologies or are there advancements in different types of the sciences that you're able to spot and know that it's an alchemist type of venture and you would you can quickly come to the conclusion, just like the way you said about blockchain, yeah, that it is in the distant future and you would rather concentrate on things now. I suppose yeah, I did answer that in a way, didn't you? With AI and VR. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think time travel is. I think we're so far from being able to you know, do anything near the speed of light that, you know, um, it, it, there, there always should be, and we should be allowed to pursue our, our, um, our investigations, what we want to do. But in terms of like, do we want to have a government backed program to do time travel? No, I think that's a, that's way premature. That's, that'd be a waste of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so are there other evident ones that obviously can't happen right now? You know, um, I think longevity of, of the, or immortality, I, mean, I wouldn't say longevity, but immortality, the, the, the kind of the version that downloading a human into, downloading a mind into a human, I mean, excuse me, downloading a human mind into a robot, into an AI, I think that is, so far off that while yeah you can you can kind of speculate there but i, I wouldn't i think it would be having a government uh, program to 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 try and do that is would be a waste at this point 
Okay. Cause, 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 cause we, we don't know so much that that is just way too, uh, Quite too glitchy. early. Too glitchy. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so yeah. So I think there are some, some things that, um, uh, in other words, I believe these are progressive developmental things. It's like, it's like when you're, when you're eight year old, you, you want to already, um, have your invest retirement account or whatever. I mean, it's just like, you, you have to go through some, you have to be, you have to go through some processes and it's too early to, to, to do some of that. And I think, um, we're, we also have a technological progression, um, and that you can't skip too many, uh, steps ahead. And so in the world of innovation, you know, being ahead too early is almost as bad as being too late. Yes. Um, there is this idea of the adjacent possible, what you, the best innovations are always one that are just one or two steps away. They aren't five steps away. You, you have to kind of take the culture and you um, want to have the next adjacent step that that is what we're looking for. That's where the the work gets done. If you're five adjacent steps, then the society can't make that many jumps all at once. And I suppose we can only rely on the limited infrastructure that we have, for well, example. Exactly. And and then you have the internet, which is a limited infrastructure, but it still gives us a lot of possibilities. And again, in your book, you mentioned about sharing and how we would access and share um, even tangibles, as, not only intangibles like music or whatever, uh, audiobooks, but we are moving into a sharing economy. And the, only for the internet, we have Airbnb, Uber, Stripe, or not Stripe, sorry, Lyft, yeah. and whatever other elements like company businesses are being set up to have more of a communal type of a shop whereby people can borrow a lawnmower without having to own one sure uh, laundromats were probably the, one of the first things that had set that up yeah and there there's companies that do you subscribe the idea yeah. is you shift to a subscription you subscribe to clothing yeah. where you yes. wear clothes once or twice and then you pass them on they're cleaned and, and someone else wears them um, and so, so, so you could kind of imagine, you know, a digital nomad, um, living a life where you technically don't own very much and the smart environment around you is providing your needs, like the old, uh, hunter gatherer who's gliding through the forest, um, carrying nothing. They pick whenever he or she needs a tool, they find something in the environment and they make the tool, they use it, they leave behind and they move on. And so, um, we could have this version where the environment is so smart. It's anticipating what you need even before you know it. So it's delivering something to you the moment that you need it. Um, and it, you leave it behind. It's recycled, used on whatever. And you have a smart environment that is, um, supporting and providing for you. And, um, you know, some people will find that creepy. They don't want AIs anticipating what they want, what you, what you want. But other people are going to crave that. Um, you know, it's like if if your AI assistant is really monitoring your day and your calendar and your movements, it should be able to request the Uber before you even before you request it so that you just walk out and the car is at the door um, because they know your habits, they know how you work, they know what the conversation is going. And so they, 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 they summon the car to be there when you walk out. So you don't even have to order it. So that's the kind of an idea where the smart environment is providing for you and that you aren't really technically owning things although you're paying for them it's not that they're free it's just that you don't have that relationship of of ownership i would subscribe to that minimalistic <laughs> approach to be honest and i bet those guys who are on quantified self they you know you are all leading this type of artificial intelligence in a way even before the technology may be rolled out on a more mainstream level because I, I I don't know exactly what you would quantify. Would it be eating? Would it be calorie intake? Would it be the like, for example, your Fitbit could record all your footsteps on heart race, uh, heart beating, and everything. So if they're able to anticipate 
how they're more productive and work based on maybe the amount of efficient time rather than actual time itself for the productive outcome. That is great yeah. for them. Yeah, see, uh, the, the the one the, I'm agreeing with you, but with, except for the one thing about efficiency, I think efficiencies are for robots. I think humans should not be concerned with efficiency. Oh no, but what I mean by if they if they're able to quantify themselves and they know about efficiency in a way yeah, yeah. that they they're leading this AI revolution that they can pass on to artificial intelligence, so that they don't yeah. don't have to worry about those quantified self that the AI will actually track, like Alexa, yes. for example, with right, Amazon. Exactly. Yes, yes, no. So there's a, there's always a little bit of, um, an art in the quantified self is how much do you want to pay attention to the information so it can change your behavior and how much of it do you want to be automated? But what we want is actually, again, to apply AI to this data because a lot of it's very hard. It's very easy to collect data. It's very hard to make meaning and, and, um, purpose from it. Mm. But, and that's where yes. AI Cheap AI has to come in. It has to be able to help us extract meaningful implications from this data. It's easy to collect, hard to understand, um, and uh, the a cheap, ubiquitous AI w- uh, would allow us to extract meaning from all that's being recorded and um, work with us to try and change the things that we want to change. Mm. Um, and so part of the, the mirror world that I was talking about earlier, the, the AR cloud, is, is the idea that um, um, among the other things that we would track would also be our movements, our expressions, our emotions, where we hesitated, where we were paying attention to, um, and other things that would be very difficult to collect Otherwise, but if we're wearing goggles and that can see things, that can track, that can face mirrors, that, uh, cameras that face back, that track our expressions and emotions, um, we would be able to do these other things about um, having uh, assistance anticipate or to, to have our our needs anticipated. So I, I think there's kind of like a little bit of um, four stages in a lot of consumer um, um, companies. One is to 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 give customers what they want. Yeah. Um, the second one is to give customers, to, help, to have customers co-create what they want. That's sort of like what we do with um, uh, open source and customization. But the final, the final thing is to actually um, uh, uh, anticipate what customers want um, to, 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 to before they even want it. And that's sort of where Amazon's been going for, a while is is where you um, you're, you're you're being is it's a kind of a synergy where the AI and the and the companies are actually helping to um, anticipate what you want and then you know of course eventually we want them to help us decide what it is that we want um, and so I think we're going to be ever ever more embedded into this AI it's very far reaching I am incredibly optimistic about it. I, 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 I think there are plenty of new problems, but the solutions to those problems caused by technology is better technology. And so um, I'm very, very optimistic about where we're going and um, I uh, can't wait to get there. God help all those politicians when AI comes about <laughs> yeah. because they'll yeah. be able to read whether they're lying or not. <laughs> uh, through all that data. I, I, I There'll be enough fake videos that um, that'll be a, not as easy to do as we think. This all kind of brings us back to the beginning of the conversation. Um, you being somewhat a nomad, if you want to say that, have no. We've gone to the point where we would could become digital nomads, and you've stayed stayed uh, so true to yourself and your own personal philosophies mm. that it must be very re- rewarding to have gone through an era, especially the 1980s, of a stereotypical greed mentality with Wall Street. And we, we just see this in movies of late, but I'm sure it's all been there. And to be able to ride that wave and do something that you've loved with your work and the whole Earth Review and the Wired magazine that you've been involved in, and um, it must really excite you, as you say, being a ver- very much an optimist. Yeah, it's good. We're having our anniversaries, the 25th anniversary of Wired, the 50th anniversary of 
of um, Whole Earth this weekend. Um, I can't wait to see that because it's streamed live and I would yeah, love yeah. to be there. And when I saw Play sure. press this button to watch it live, I'm yeah. all there. Well, great. Um, I, I appreciate your questions, your interest in my life. Um, I encourage other people to um, invent your own life, give your own definition of success, and um, keep making new mistakes. Exactly. And so thank be, you. Be creative. Thanks very much, Kevin. You're really welcome. appreciate it. You are an economic rock star, and I'm so grateful to yeah. have this opportunity to speak with you. Thanks very sure much. Thing. All Thanks the best. Friend. Bye. Yep. Bye bye. Economic Rockstar is a free podcast that does not exclude anyone from listening as long as they have a device to listen, download or stream. I have many listeners from all parts of the world and I truly am pleased to know that the Economic Rockstar podcast unites all of you through the common theme of economics. I strive to commit to releasing an episode each week and aim to develop Economic Rockstar into much more than just a podcast. Patreon is a platform that gives you, the listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast, the opportunity to express your appreciation of the show by committing a financial reward for as little as $1 a month. Patreon allows me, the creator of the Economic Rockstar podcast, to be rewarded and paid by you so I can continue with the running costs of the show and to reinvest and expand the podcast into other platforms or mediums in the future. To find out more on how you can help the Economic Rockstar podcast and have your name added to the supporters list on my website, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar or visit the supporters page on the economic rockstar website if you enjoy this podcast why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the economic rockstar community if you're listening to this episode on itunes or stitcher radio i would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it if you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.